Abraham is not the only individual in the ancient world to know of a creator and of the ethical implications of this great truth. But he is the first to have a dream of founding a family that would transmit this monotheistic principle from generation to generation. In 1940, with doom descending on the Jews of Europe, several hundred yeshiva students obtained visas from Japanese consul Chiyune Sugihara, who had heroically given them out despite his lack of authority to do so. These young Jewish men and their wives took the Trans-Siberian Railway across Russia, then sailed by ferry for three days to find refuge in Japan. They instinctively understood that they were escaping death, and indeed most of them would never see their families again. They traveled into the unknown, sustained solely by their faith, just as their ancestor Abraham had once traveled into the unknown, sustained solely by his faith. Two of those individuals on board that train were my grandfather and grandmother, and decades later this journey of theirs would be commemorated at a celebration of a circumcision in a manner that would reflect not only their faith, but also the unique nature of the Jewish people and the chosenness of Abraham himself. Welcome to Bible 365. I'm Mayor Soloveitchik. Abram first hears from Almighty God at the age of 75 the divine demand to leave his home and to journey to the land of Canaan. No mention is made of how Abram understands who it is that is addressing him. For Jewish tradition, it is assumed that prior to this encounter, Abram already has come to know that there is one God, that Abram somehow intuited it on his own. The surest sign of this is that, surrounded by Sumerian pagans, he, Abram, somehow defies the beliefs of all around him and, in his journey, rejects their entire worldview as captured by the two simple words, Vayelech Avram, and Avram went. Avram journeys to the land of Canaan, joined by his wife Sarai and his nephew Lot. Clearly, his faith fuels his journey. But is he the only believer on earth? Many biblical readers assume as much, and indeed assert, that this is why God has chosen Abram. This is why, in response to the famous bit of verse, how odd of God to choose the Jews, Jews have often quoted another very British bit of poetry in response. Not odd, you sod. We Jews chose God. According to this understanding, Abram is chosen by the Almighty because in a world of pagans, he is the only monotheist. But is he? At first, Abram does seem entirely surrounded by immoral and pagan societies. A famine drives Abram to Egypt, where because of Sarai's beauty, she is seized, then saved by the Almighty's intervention. Upon return to Canaan, disagreement among their shepherds leads Lot to abandon Abram for the city of Sodom, Sodom, and we are informed in Genesis 13, 13, that the men of Sodom were wicked and sinners before the Lord exceedingly. Thus, at this point, it seems that Abram truly is the only beacon of faith in his environs. Suddenly, war breaks out, and Lot is taken captive. Abram organizes an army and battles to liberate his nephew, or as the Bible puts it, his brother, a hint to the familial loyalty that defines Abram. Emerging from battle victorious, he meets a mysterious king in chapter 14, verse 18. And Melchizedek, king of Shalem, brought out bread and wine, and he was a priest of the Most High God, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram to the Most High God, creator of heaven and earth. The city of Shalem will later be known as Jerusalem, linking monotheism and that site forever. And it seems that Melchizedek and Abram share one profound idea, that there is a creator of heaven and earth. It appears then that there are other monotheists. 
The poetic response to the anti-Semitic quip is indeed accurate. We Jews did choose God. But so, it seems, did others around the earth who were never part of the people of Israel. And the Bible also believes that moral heroes are not exclusive to Israel, that they are to be encountered everywhere. And, ladies and gentlemen, how could I, a Jew who exists only because of the sacrifice of a very non-Jewish Japanese consul, think otherwise? Thus, the fact that Abraham is a monotheist is essential. That he is morally righteous is necessary, but we have not yet discovered what makes him singular. For this we turn to the next passage in Genesis, one which is well known and yet which rightly understood is also astonishing. Chapter 15. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield. Thy reward shall be very great. Abram, who has constantly obeyed the Almighty up till this point, and who has said nothing to him, suddenly bursts out with a cry. And Abram said, Lord God, what wilt thou give me, seeing I go childless? It is extraordinary. The God that Abram has followed across a continent promises him reward beyond imagination, and his reaction is astonishing audaciousness. So what, he says, I want a child. But God, as verse 5 illustrates, is not angered by this reply. And he brought him forth outside and said, Look now toward the heaven and count the stars, if thou be able to count them. And he said unto him, so shall thy children be. The fact that Abraham desperately desires to be a father is the very source of God's love for him, and the very reason why it is he and not Melchizedek that will be the vehicle for God's providential plan. Several chapters later, in Genesis 18:19, the Almighty will say so explicitly, For I have known him, says God, known Abraham, because he will command his children and household after him to keep the ways of the Lord. Abraham, is not the only individual in the ancient world to know of a creator and of the ethical implications of this great truth. But he is the first to have a dream of founding a family that would transmit this monotheistic principle from generation to generation. Abraham is the first to truly dream of not only bringing children into this world, but of teaching them and raising them. Children who would perpetuate his body, but also his beliefs. Abram was loved by God because of his qualifications, not only as a believer, but also as a faithful father. Thus is parental love at the heart of Abram's elevation, and thus the bond between parents and children is placed at the center of the Jewish faith. Indeed, Jews see themselves not only as part of a faith, but also a family. As the theologian Michael Wishagrod put it, a full definition of Judaism does, of course, involve a whole complex of ideas, beliefs, values, and obligations. But however crucial these are, he adds, they are in a sense superstructure rather than foundation. The foundation of Judaism is the family identity of the Jewish people as the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, end quote. This is why, as Wishograd further points out, the state of Israel successfully came into being when Jews came to the Holy Land from every culture and country from across the earth, discovering therein a bond that was much more important than their differences showing the world that they were truly brother and sister. But in God's guarantee of a future family for Abram, there is also a hint of a warning. God finalizes his promise with a covenant using an ancient Middle Eastern method in which animals are cut in half and the parties pass between the parts. Here the parties are to be Abram and the Almighty. Then we are enigmatically informed as follows in Genesis 15:11, And the birds of prey came down upon the carcasses, and Abram drove them away. And it came to pass that when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and lo, a dread, even a great darkness, fell upon him. Why do these birds of prey preface the darkness that descends? Perhaps to indicate 
the many predators that Israel as the chosen nation will encounter in its history. When my grandfather and his fellow students arrived in Kobe, Japan, two of the rabbinic leaders were summoned to Tokyo to meet the military, as the Nazis had apparently informed their allies that Jews were problematic. At this meeting, a general asked the rabbis, tell us, why exactly do the Nazis hate you so much? One of the rabbis was flummoxed, flustered. How do you answer a question like that? But the other looked calmly at the Japanese general and said, the Nazis hate us because we are Asian. The general responded, but we are Asian. Yes, the rabbi replied, you are also on their list. Now, this is a very clever answer, and it is true, of course, that the Nazis hated all those who didn't look like them. But at the same time, anti-Semitism is not just hatred of difference. It is hatred of the Jews, hatred of chosenness, of our family's eternal affiliation with the Almighty and with the morality of biblical monotheism. In chapter 17, Abram's name is changed, enlarged, to Abraham, Avraham, which means Av Hamon Goyim, father of a multitude of nations. And his wife Sarai, which means my princess, will have her own name evolve into a universalized form, Sarah, humanity's princess. Meaning, God will be known to all the nations through Abraham's family. And the creator of the universe will be known himself by the family name, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And those who hate the God of Israel and his moral message for humanity will direct their hatred first and foremost to the family of Abraham. Darkness will descend upon Abraham's children again and again, as it did for my grandparents and for the Jews of Europe. As Michael Wishergott has argued, and I paraphrase him here, if Hitler sought the eradication not only of Judaism but of the Jews, it was because he knew that to destroy the presence of God and his morality in this world, it was not only Jewish values that needed to be eradicated, but Jews for Hitler that had to be destroyed. But if through all this Israel endures, it is at least in part because we are driven by the Abrahamic instinct for familial perpetuation. And this is the ultimate meaning of the ritual introduced in Genesis 17.10. This is my covenant which ye shall keep between me and you and thy seed after thee. Every male among you shall be circumcised. So central to our identity is this ritual that we apply to it the word bris or berit, covenant, without any other additional explanation. By marking our sons, we remind them of their own obligation to continue Abraham's dream of fatherhood. And we remind parents that every child born to us is akin to the child we will soon meet, akin to Isaac, a gift, the source of our perpetuation. Darkness has descended many times in the past upon Abraham's family, but it was our dedication to familial transmission that overcame all. Not every Jew has understood this. One who abandoned his heritage, Spinoza, claimed that it was anti-Semitism, anti-Semitism that was inspired for Spinoza by the Jewish differential mark of circumcision that, in his view, allowed for our eternal existence. But the truth, I think, is the opposite. In the midst of hate, what allowed the Jews to endure was familial love. This, for them, was the source of light in the midst of the darkness. I had the chance to reflect on this when I first merited to experience the circumcision of my first child, my eldest, which took place on December 25th. My friends found this amusing as I was studying at the time both Jewish and Christian thought, and they went out of their way to wish me a Merry Christmas. But the truth is, for me, it was a very serious moment. The cry of my child seemed to reflect the Jewish cries throughout history, and the joy of the experience seemed to capture the very source of our endurance 
that we Jews treasured the gift of children above all else. At the circumcision, the Father pronounces the blessing, inspired by our biblical passage. Blessed art thou, O Lord, who commanded us to bring our child into the covenant of Abraham. And at that moment, the community responds. As he has entered the covenant, so may he enter a life of Torah, the wedding canopy, and good deeds. To the outsider, these words may seem odd. This child is eight days old, and we are already envisioning his wedding. But the statement said is for the parents, reminding them that it is our obligation to seek to ensure that the life we lead and the life our children lead is a Jewish one, a continuation of Abraham and Sarah, a fulfillment of God's promise that the covenant of our family will endure even when the darkness descends. It was that very darkness that ensconced my grandparents as they traveled by train across Asia, escaping the specter of annihilation as almost every other member of their family was murdered. My grandfather's journey, like that of Abraham, ultimately also ended in the Holy Land, but it was much longer in distance and duration than that of his ancient ancestor. He spent the war with my grandmother in Japan and Shanghai, and then he made his way to New York where he taught Torah for many years before ultimately moving to Israel to continue his spiritual vocation. Decades after his passing, I received a call from a young man whose wife had just had a baby boy, and he was calling to ask me to officiate at the circumcision. His wife's family, whom I also knew, is named Sassoon, and this new baby's great-grandfather was named Rachmo Sassoon. Rachmo Sassoon was born in Aleppo, part of the Syrian Jewish community, at the beginning of the 20th century, and he traveled for business to Kobe, Japan, building a Sephardic synagogue there. In 1940, when Kobe experienced an influx of Eastern European Jews, Sassoon helped form a committee from his own Jewish community that was in the city to help the refugees. Culturally, a businessman from Aleppo would seem to have nothing in common with yeshiva students from Lithuania and Poland, but what bound them was Jewish brotherhood. At this circumcision where I officiated, I explained to the unaffiliated who were in attendance how circumcision reflected the fact that we are more than mere individuals, that as Jews we are bound in an eternal, familial covenant uniting generations past, present, and posterity. I then described how this baby's great-grandfather had welcomed Jews from the other side of the world to Japan. And then I revealed what the baby's family did not themselves know when they requested that I preside, that my own maternal grandfather, Rabbi Shmuel David Warshavshik, had been one of those Jews who had traveled to what was for him a far-flung corner of the earth, who was welcomed to Kobe by Jews like Rachmo Sassoon. And I asked the audience, When those two Jews, this baby's great-grandfather and my grandfather, Jews from utterly different areas of the earth, Syria and Eastern Europe, found themselves in Kobe, Japan with the entire world at war, could they have predicted that one day, 70 years later, the grandson of one of them would be presiding at the circumcision of the great-grandson of the other, together in New York City? They may not have predicted it, but they would have believed it, because they both understood how the sacrifices of the past obligate us in the present to preserve our familial future. And they understood that as Jews, they and their descendants were bound to one another. And at that moment, I was overcome with gratitude for the courage and Abrahamic fortitude of our ancestors, which helped ensure that generations later, this baby's family and my family could come together as Jews, marking the continuity of the covenant together. Gratitude that thousands of years after one man from Mesopotamia journeyed to the Holy Land and founded a family, his journey continues that after so many attempted annihilations of his descendants, his family still endures, and thereby the spirit of Abraham lives still. This is Mayor Soloveitchik, looking forward to learning together tomorrow, signing off.